Hello, and welcome to the Property Solopreneur podcast, a show for property investors and developers who want to build and grow their own profitable businesses. I'm sharing with you my decades of property experience and interviewing many other successful property people who are happy to share their varied and priceless knowledge freely. Business doesn't need to be hard and nor do you need to be lucky. But as a certified strategist, I know you need a plan to work to. And a good start is by listening to other people's successes and failures. Why reinvent the wheel? This allows us to have a more in-depth knowledge of the wider property world. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Property Solopreneur. Now, it struck me that quite a lot of my clients at the moment seem to be coming either to the end of a meaty project or are just starting one. You know, that fun, exciting moment when you know things are going to really kick off. Well, we talk about them during accountability calls. And it is something I think that is so beneficial to those people who've either uh, stuck or who are new to property is just listening to what other people are doing. And it gives you such inspiration. But if you're completely new to property of any sort, frankly, I think the biggest hurdle is just getting going because everything seems counterintuitive and very large, frankly. I mean, you know, if you've never been asked to draw what you think a building looks like on a piece of paper, it is quite tricky. You will never have written a spec for a builder to price to or to work to. And actually talking of builders, you may never have encountered one before. You may never understand how to work with them on a daily basis or even to hire them. As I say, you know, all this sort of thing is discussed by my clients during accountability sessions or one-to-one work because we all have so many plates spinning in the air. And often, actually, the stress and the problem dissipates just by talking about it. Sometimes, of course, though, it isn't the bricks and mortar that are the problem. It's the mindset that has taken a wobble. And we all need support to get out of our own way. You know, we need encouragement and Those around us who don't do property, they don't get it. They can't encourage us. They just see it as something you should get out of if you've got a problem. Uh, We may need a bit of mentoring or perhaps an alternative way of dealing with our assumptions about properties. We can read stuff in the newspapers that's completely wrong. Um, We may, of course, just need new methods or systems to make us grow and achieve more. That's what we all want. And if this sounds like something you need to do to push yourself to get more out of property, have a look in the show notes below. Follow the link and book a half-hour free chat with me about how we possibly could work together. Now, again, if you've never found my website, racheltroughton.com, have a look. I've got free checklists on there that can be downloaded, as well as all my podcasts, all the back catalogue there, should you wish to binge listen. Now, we all, as I say, have to learn somewhere. And my guest today, Martin Rapley, learned from the ground up. He's worked on mega projects, really big ones, right down to the teeny-weeniest ones. And there is a method and a system to each and every one. Now, it's very tempting to think that property investing is all about buying the right property in the right place for the right price and then getting it uh, financed correctly. Yes, that's true, but it's all too easy to overlook the constructor sector's part in the whole thing. Be the builder a single tradesman or a big building company of whatever size, frankly, they're all covered by the same rules and regulations. And as property investors, we have to understand how the builders can make or break a project and what their role is in our success. 
Well, welcome to the Property Solopreneur, Martin. Now, for those who've not met you, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> well, when my background is construction. I left school, worked for a building contractor as a quantity surveyor, which is the person who looks after the finances for building projects. And then moved from there, I got involved with estimating and then I got involved with managing projects and became a contractor's project manager. So I was looking after all of those aspects, delivering projects for clients, mostly around London and the Southeast, and did that for, I don't know, 28 years or something like that in the end, at a, to a point where I was getting fed up being employed. I set up my own construction business. And what I found was that by just by luck more than anything, most of my clients were property investors, and I'd not really considered what property investors were at that stage. I did have my own rental property, uh, but I, uh, something I'd just bought and you know invested in years before. And so talking to all of these property investors, I started it just opened my mind as to what property investing was about, really. And I started going to a lot of long property investing meetings, and that, of course, meant I'd met more clients that were property investors. But what I kept finding, which was really frustrating for me, was that for me, they were just pouring money down a black hole because they didn't know some of the stuff that I knew. They didn't understand some of the ways of managing their projects better. They didn't understand how to work out the, the cost of the works to buy the property at the right price. And so in 20, where are we? 2013, I wound up my construction business. I said, I'm just going to become a consultant for all of these property investors. I'm just going to immerse myself in the property investing world. I did some training then. I've now got my own portfolio because I learned more about property investing. And since then, I've been as a consultant or as a trainer helping property investors from my, well, nearly 40 years of experience now. And of course, but that is, it's the, the assumption by property investors, because this is actually what most people when they're teaching or doing courses concentrate on, is that the really important stuff is the paperwork. It's the numbers that the estate agent give you and how quickly you can get it bought and how clever your finance can be. And they forget that actually once it's yours, you've got to do something with it. And that's where the black hole becomes really obvious, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. It doesn't matter how good a deal you negotiate in the first place. If, if you haven't factored in the true cost of the work or the work costs way more than anticipated because it doesn't go to plan, you've lost all of that good work up front. And I really want to work with people that have, can generate cr brilliant deals up front and want to generate brilliant refurbishments and conversions. And as a result, make way more profit at the back end of the deal. Absolutely. So pricing a job. For anybody who's never done a refurb before, this is definitely a dark art, isn't it? You know, and <laughs> you know, and, and you can get and people can tie themselves up in knots. Where should someone start? So the first place thing I always say to anyone is come away from anything that is based on a price per square foot or price per square meter, because every property is totally different. Be very careful talking to someone at a networking meeting that says they've converted a three-bedroom house into a five-bedroom HMO without fully understanding what they had to do. Because as we know, some of these are very, very simple and it's not much different from taking the sofa out and putting the bed in, <laughs> whereas others can be way more complicated, including uh, extensions and additional ensuite. So, so be very careful with anything like that. What I teach people to do is actually break their project down into component parts. So what do we need to strip out? 
what do we need to put build back in again? Then we've got a new bathroom, new kitchen. We've got to redecorate, rewire, new heating, and break things down into component parts because it's far easier to put a price against an indicative central heating system or say to another property investor, how much did your central heating system cost for that five-bedroom HMO? And that is much more comparable across multiple properties. And yes. while some of those figures might be a bit high and some might be a bit low, generally they're going to be pretty close. So that's the method I teach anyone. Absolutely. And then and then it actually, if you've got those fundamentals, you can then develop it, can't you? You can start to create the maps that the builders need. You can create um, almost in, in your mind what needs to be bought and what you need to look for almost in the snagging list. Although, of course, I know technically a snagging list isn't a thing, you know, because you should have got it right. You shouldn't have left it that long. But it is something that you have to get round before you even start to work on it. And I, I have a problem with people who go, oh, yes, well, it, all my properties, I pick the keys up on Friday and I'm in there on Monday uh, and it's all going to go to plan. That's not, you've got a very simple house, really, if that's going to happen, haven't you? Y- y- yes, absolutely. It is perfectly possible and I've done it with clients to pick the keys up on Friday yep. and start on Monday, but only if you've got time to get builders in beforehand and consultants to, to put together a scheme. So sometimes if it's an empty property, that's perfectly achievable. But other times, that that's not at all. And what a lot of property investors forget is that, okay, take the keys on, on Friday, builder starts on Monday. On Tuesday or Wednesday, the builder's phoning up saying, I need the kitchen layout because they've done all the ripping out and they want to rewire the kitchen or replumb the kitchen. And that immediate, and unless you've got that organized, which you might not have got organized because you may not have measured it, you may not have got in to measure it. And then it just becomes a whole series of firefighting. Everything is, you know, and, and I talk to people and I say, Oh, the builder is always on the phone. And I say to them, not on my projects, they're not. They're not always on the phone. In fact, I can go a whole week and not speak to them between visits to the property because we've spent a little bit of time planning up front, which means I can do other things like talking to you now yep. rather than worry whether the builder's going to phone me and ask me some kind of question that I should have thought about. Oh, that all comes down to that lovely mantra, isn't it? You know, prior preparation prevents piss poor performance, to use yes. you know, a phrase. But you know, it's absolutely essential. And there's the other problem that either investors think that builders are God, know everything, and will always work, you know, will somehow manage to read their minds <laughs> yes. or they view them as the devil incarnate who they've got to trick into doing things correctly. So yes. this is polarised, but how do most people, how should they go, if they've never done this before, actually approach a builder and get one on side and work successfully with them? Well, well you're, you're dead right by saying getting them on side because, it's, it's as you say, some people see it as a sport to trip the builders up. Yes. That doesn't do anyone any favours. No. And ultimately, if you can build up a good relationship with a builder, they will become a really powerful member of your of your team. Yeah. Uh, you've got to be careful that you don't just go to the first builder you meet and instruct them to start without doing some research and some due diligence. And and I think also coming across to the builder as being credible and knowing what you're doing 
And I say that from the other side because 20 years ago, when I was pricing projects for contractors, a lot of our contra- our clients, we were doing projects that were raised from about £30,000 up to about maybe four or £500,000 back in those days. So not enormous jobs, right? not necessarily bigger than some property investors are doing. But we would be selective. We, we would generally be able to take on any project that came in. We had a big setup. However, if we got inquiries from clients that looked like they were disorganized and would get a mess us around, we would normally just write back and say, really sorry, we're too busy to take on more projects. Yes. And so I'm saying to property investors now, don't be that person. If you're yeah. if you're one of those people that continually have problems finding builders because they're always too busy, then perhaps consider how you're coming across to them and consider whether you're coming across as someone who doesn't really know what they want. And as a result, are going to mess the builder around and the builder's thinking, why should I work for this person? That That's a very good point because I've heard quite a few novices. I work with, tend to put, work with people who have done a couple of these before they get going, but many novices who go, well, I've taken lots of builders around my, my building and uh, they've all given me different views on it. And I'm thinking, hang on a second, there should only be one view and that's yours and your plan and your spec. Is that what everyone should do when they're talking to builders? Have that spec and that idea. Yeah, that spec or schedule of works is so, so critical. And in fact, I, I believe it's the most important document in everything because as you, as you point out, the builders need this. And if four builders have got the same spec, then four builders are pricing the same project rather That's than true. four builders all making their own interpretation. And, and this takes me back to when I was running my own business, a potential client told me he wanted to convert this house into an HMO. Well, I didn't know what an HMO was in those days, and I certainly didn't know what the legislation was and the regulations related to an HMO. So I just priced what I believed he needed, whereas really as property investors, we should be saying, right, for my HMO to be compliant, I need you to do this, 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 and this. Here is the specification. And of course, builders expect to be in competition price-wise, but if you give them a schedule of works, at least they're thinking, I'm in a fair competition with other people here. So this is a fair rate, therefore I'm interested in looking at this volume. You see, that's something that many people don't twig. And so having having got over the first hurdle of writing your spec and, and knowing what you want, how do you work with a builder? What sort, you know, the average property investor, I'm not talking about someone who's going to build the shard now. I'm talking your average small buy-to-let or HMO or service accommodation, that kind of thing. So what kind of contract should they be looking for? Something they write off the back of, I once got given a co- something ripped off the back of a concrete packet. So I've had them all. <laughs> yeah. And, and to be honest, there's nothing wrong with that because the fact that you're we're even talking about contracts already, we're above some property investors yes. who have done nothing more than make a phone call. Yeah. Come on then, Bob, start on Monday type thing. Yes. And and that's that's not really where we need to be. So th- there's there's a couple of ways we can deal with contracts. Right at the very bottom level, we can put together some agreed heads of terms. Now I say agreed because this really should be a collaborative approach. I always recommend to anyone that prior to appointing a builder, there is a formal meeting of some type, ideally not in a cold, wet, empty house, probably <laughs> in a coffee shop or a hotel yep. or an office, but have a meeting and agree the terms. That's the very basic. And I use that for my some of my own projects at small, uh, lower level. Then we can come up to some 
contracts that you can find on the internet. Some are better than others. Right. Places like the Federation of Master Builders got very good contracts that are well set out. There's other free contracts you'll get that are not quite so good. So yeah, and, and have got some conflicts in them. And then we come up to the Joint Contracts Tribunal, who are a body of construction specialists that have been around since the 1950s and have been delivering standard forms of contract. And at the bottom end of that is a homeowner's contract. Right. Which although we're not necessarily homeowners as property investors, that contract is fine. And then as you go up, you've got higher and better and you know more robust contracts where you would need to have a consultant working alongside you to, to administer those. Now, those top end, you may well need if you're using drawdown finance from lenders, yep. which could, of course, be on as something as small as a fifty to £100,000 refurbishment. You'll definitely need it on the bigger ones. But yep. if you're just bringing in a just bringing in you know, a, a handyman type uh, contractor to new kitchen, new bathroom, paint it through, lay some carpets, do something, do some agreed terms and conditions to make sure you're both in the same place before it starts. And you raised there the quite a range of contracts. And I think that's something we all need to bear in mind is because many people start off doing very small things. And somehow the next thing they know, because I know this happened to me, is you suddenly find yourself by building flats. You're not quite sure how that happened. It just seemed like a good idea at the time. But if you up your game and do bigger projects, then it's not just you're doing bigger projects. Everything you do, don't you, has to get bigger and and stronger and more professional. Yeah, and the thing to register with bigger projects from a construction perspective is you are taking on board a lot more risk as well. So I say to, to anyone, by all means, Take steps. Go up the ladder and yep. do bigger and bigger projects, but be very careful taking big steps. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of property investor trainers that will encourage you to you know, set the world alight and do really big, elaborate deals, which actually, from a process of buying a property, the process of buying a £100,000 property is not vastly different from buying a million-pound property. No, it's not. But yeah. the difference between managing a £100,000 construction project and a million-pound construction project is vastly different with a huge amount more risk in the middle there. So so it, it, there's no harm in going forwards, but go forwards with some knowledge and apply that knowledge as you get bigger and bigger. And, and of course, the other, there are other things that change as you go along. So you've got to be, you know, when I started off, there were no CDM regs. Frankly, you could have done almost anything. Yes. Um, it, it, you know, for someone who doesn't know, what are they? Why do we need to worry about them? And, and is that not something that Mr. Builder should deal with? So, so CDM stands for Construction Design Management. It's the safe delivery of a project from... Those letters are back to front in reality because it should be D for design, C for construction, and N for management. But they put them that. That's, this is a government thing, isn't it? So oh, of yeah, course they're going to confuse us. <laughs> a quango um, made that up, yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And effectively, you as a property owner in whatever capacity, whether it's personally owned or owned through a business that you're a director of, you are ultimately responsible for the safe delivery of that. And yes, it's all right to say, well, isn't the contractor responsible? And to a large extent, yes, the contractor is. But if something goes wrong, 
The health and safety executive will say to you, how did you know that the contractor was capable of doing it safely? And just to put some context in here, the worst thing that can happen on your site is someone is killed. That is the worst thing that can happen. And if that does happen, the health and safety executive will say, well, because you appointed the contractor and you can't demonstrate that you had the skills to appoint the right contractor, you are now partially responsible for this fatality. The contractor will be partially responsible, but so will you. And you could be, I mean, that could stretch to hundreds of thousands of pounds of compensation that you or your business has got to find. And, yes. and the CDM regulation probably came in initially, I think, you know, probably 25 years ago, but there was a major overhaul in 2015, which categorically ensured that property investors fitted in un- under those re- le- le- that legislation. Prior to then, it was a bit of a grey area, but they categorically do fit in now. There's no no greyness about it. And the way we manage this is we appoint a CDM consultant to help us discharge our conditions to deliver this project safely. And then if there's things going on that you're not happy with, your consultant will help improve those. And if that does happen to be some kind of claim, you've got your consultant looking after your interests. I say to people, treat it like an insurance policy. You're not intending to write off your car with the tree that's down the street, but you know that if you do, there's an insurance policy that will kick in and sort it all out for you. And it's exactly the same with CDM. You're not intending to injure someone on site, but But if it does happen, happen, someone is there to look after your interests. And of course, what people forget is that if you are a property investor, you are probably dealing with buildings that have problems. And so therefore, it's not unexpected to find stuff that's wired incorrectly, that have you know mains that go across the back of, I've been in kitchens that have main lines that run from one top corner to bottom corner. Forget all the instructions about it going straight up or horizontal or any of these other. You know, It seemed like a good idea at the time, so someone put a, a pipe there. Um, so we've got to remember that we do, if you want to make the money, you've got to put the time and the effort in and the understanding, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, if we're refurbishing projects, this is what is we were saying, things come out that are unexpected. And it's when things that are unexpected come about that actually your strength of management is really tested. It's very easy to bring in a builder and say, put in a new kitchen and repaint. Yeah. But you've got to start managing it when the builder phones you and says, the pipe's in a really obscure place. I can't turn it off. I've got to cut it. We've got water everywhere on all of those things. And that's really when experience comes in and support around you comes in. Absolutely. And of course, the other thing is that new regulations come in. I mean, I well, with CIS. So for uh, for those who, who, can you explain that to someone who's never done it? Because to me, it took me ages to get my head around it when I first started having to do it. Well, CIS ought to be very, very easy to deal with. CIS stands for Construction Industry Scheme. Yeah. And it goes back to the days where builders were paid cash in hand in a brown envelope on a Friday and HMRC didn't ever see the tax side of it. So the government bought in, there's been several things over the years, but what we're left with now is effectively this construction industry scheme, which is how we manage taxation. And effectively, the responsibility for managing the tax of the individual people working on site rests with their employer, but in most cases, unless there is a further higher up employer that elects to deal with it. 
Now, if that further higher up don't elect, then it passes back down. Now, as a property investor, you will categorically not get involved with CIS or you will categorically get involved. If you set your business up as a developer, so have a look at your SIC codes. They're the codes on Companies House. It's coincidental they're the same letters in reverse. It's nothing to do with the same thing. But have a look at those codes. If you're set up as a builder or a developer, then you will have to register for CIS tax and manage it. If you are set up as a property investor or someone who buys and sells property, even if you do a bit of refurbishment in there along the way, you won't need to register for CIS, in which case it's all dealt with by the contractors. So it's only really for people that are aspiring to turn themselves into developers, effectively buying, refurbishing and selling. Bear in mind that sale could be back to your own party or you're at another business. Yeah. But if you're getting involved with buying, refurbishment and selling as a developer, consider CIS. And at that point, you may need, well, you may be able to delegate a whole lot to the builder, but you may need a bookkeeper slash accountant to guide you through that process. It's not super onerous. No. Apart from the fact you've got to do a tax return every single month, even if there's no tax gone through the business that month. So it's it's just something else that costs money and takes time. It's another piece of paper, isn't it? But um, I mean, and I, I know that I'm one of those people who will have a load of projects and then I'll have a fallow period because I've got a variety of businesses on the go at once. It's actually quite a well set up system and that it is easy to turn on and off, which isn't the case for many things that in- you encounter with government. So that works really, really well. But so far, we've talked about lots of different things that a, a property investor's got to get through their head. And so now, you know, those are just two small things. But of course, the big word that every single person must have at the front of their mind is the word budget, isn't it? You know, because if you go over budget, there isn't really any profit. So comes back to your first thing about understanding what you want to do. How do you set a budget to do a refurb? Is it is it just licking your finger and sticking it in the air? Well, no, def- definitely not. And 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 what I encourage anyone to do is consider the bat the budget almost from a back to front perspective. Okay. So I talked about how we put together a price, but but what in in the world of development, the price that the property is on the market for has got nothing to do with anything. So in the world of development, we say, what is the value of the property when we have done all of the work we want to, to do to it? The, the high-end apartment that we're going to use for service accommodation, the five-bedroom HMO, the single let flat, whatever it is we're creating, what is the value of that flat? And then we deduct off that figure the cost of getting the property to that, which is the work that we're going to carry out, the refurbishment works. And then we deduct off that figure the cost of any consultants we need, maybe an architect maybe a structural engineer, building control, some other bits and pieces in there. And then we deduct off the cost of acquiring the site in the first place. And we deduct off some interest and we deduct off a line for profit and contingency. Yep. And that figure that we're left with, in reality, that is called, in developer's world, that is called a residual value. So we started at the top, we've got down to a residual value. Now, if that residual value is higher than the properties on the market for, happy days. And you've got an you've got an opportunity here to, to get a really good deal. And and if you've been really clever and creative with what you're creating, that value, bearing in mind that the average house is on the market as to what it's worth bricks and mortar to a home buyer, if you can make more money out of it as an HMO or a mixed use or whatever, then why not go along and offer the asking price? Yeah. However, if that price comes down below the asking price, 
clearly that's a target to to get the price down. And in reality, if you can't get it down to it, then you can't buy the property. No. Because worked out what you need. And and sadly, there's a lot of property investors say, well, the property's been on the market for a long, long time at two hundred thousand pounds. The estate agents told me they'll they'll bite my hand off if I offer one hundred and ninety. So I am, without any consideration as to whether one hundred and ninety is the right price. Yes, and whether you know they're, they're going to get their money back out of it. Now, having said all of that, I'm well aware that there's some property investors that have got their own funds, possibly from other businesses, inheritance or something like that. And all they want to do is bury it in, in property. Yep. It doesn't matter to them if they don't really add any value because they're going to get some income coming in perhaps on a monthly basis from rent. And so those people probably are less concerned about working out properly. But anyone who's wanting to refinance, wanting to recycle their funds through, wanting to borrow money from investors and be able to repay them, do need to work from that back end. And that's not a message that many of the trains actually get out no it isn't and there's that you know you neatly encapsulated there the fact that we we happily throw out that phrase a property investor they are so diverse you know when i was sourcing i had clients who were banking money they did not want it in the banks at all they wanted it in bricks and mortar and the only thing they were interested in actually price was irrelevant was if i buy that property tomorrow and i have to fire sell it next year will i get all my money back if i could say to them yeah because that's in a really good spot and we know those sell you know on two days they'll go i'll take that which to the property investing world was oh that's not a property investment well actually it is because they're you know (laughs) it's an investment property you call it what you like so you really neatly put there the fact that you have to know as a property investor whoever we are what kind we are and what we're looking for and therefore how we got to approach a deal and how we do the budgeting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I say, what what are your metrics? How do you know it's a good job, project? Is it a good project because it delivers X amount of income a month? Is it a good project because you can refinance and get all your money back out? Is it a good project because it's in the right area and you know every day of the week it's a safe place to bury some funds? Yes. And, and, and you know, you could sit next to someone at a networking meeting and they would see something very different in the same property as you yes. because they're looking at it with a different set of glasses on and with different ideas and intentions. They've perhaps got a little, a different amount of money in the bank of their own to spend. And so it, it, it's a, if everyone sees things differently. Leave alone the fact that one person's thinking it's a five-bedroom HMO and someone's thinking it's a six-bedroom with, with no on suites because there's always those options as well. Um, so it is about understanding what, what you want to do, and so to a large extent, not trying to create deals out of nothing. Uh, when I was a builder, the, the, in fact, the fellow who was asking me to price his HMO, I gave him a price of £60,000 to do the work, and rang him a few days later and said, what did he look like? He said he couldn't afford it. I said, oh, did you get any other prices? He said, no, I didn't get any other prices. I said, oh, well, okay, so it's only me. I said, if I can get to the right price, I could might be able to do it for you. What do you want? And he said, £30,000. And I said, I can't do it for £30,000. Where did that come from? And he said, it's the difference between what it cost me to buy the property and what it's worth at the end. And all he's done is he's bought at this, he knows it's this, and he sliced the bit in the middle and was effectively looking at doing a really cheap refurbishment job for £30,000, but with a desire to get it into a reasonable quality HMO. 
and the two just were not going to work together. And of course, that is another very neat statement there because many people are being sucked into the property investment world thinking that it is a great way to make money, it will make them their fortune, and you don't have to have any money to start this whole stuff off. It's very easy to do. If you're meeting someone for the first time and they are coming saying, you know, it's, it's going to make my fortune. They're always very bright-eyed and bushy-tails because it is exciting. And we must never lose sight of the excitement that you can get out of property. Otherwise, why keep going? What What do you say to people is sort of minimum they're going to have to understand you need to invest properly? Well, it really comes down to what kind of finance they're getting. Because people say to me, I can do development and I don't need any money. I've heard people say I don't need any of my own money to do development. Well, when, pe- when people say that, as we know, they're saying that you can borrow some money from friends and family or whatever. But there's also an awareness that you can do the build work for no money. And you absolutely can. There are drawdown facilities. Yep. However, those facilities very seldom include the cost for your consultants, yep. your architect, structural engineer that I spoke about earlier on. And they also don't allow for any ancillary costs that the builder might need to get going. And they'll also start to delay. Well, they don't delay, but they can very easily take two weeks after you've agreed the funds to get the money down. And if the builder needs the money quicker, you need some of that in your bank as cash flow. So to some extent, it depends on the size of the project. When I work with clients, I want to know before we're recommending to work with a builder that the client knows where the money is. It's either all sitting in the bank account ready to go or it's sitting in a position that they've got this drawdown facility and we know how we're going to manage that. Anyone who's saying, well, we're just going to start it and see how we get on, that's a recipe for disaster. Total recipe, red Um, flag. And and to that extent, I've got an empty property at the moment of my own that needs a refurbishment and I haven't got enough money sitting in the bank to do it. I'm trying to do some refinances and stuff as usual. And so I'm not starting to work. I don't want to start and be messing the builder around and not being able to pay him. So that's that's the, the place to look at. So it is. it comes down to size of the project, the terms you've agreed with the builder. But you know, if you're looking at doing, let's say you're, you're looking at getting a sizable project off the ground, a, a commercial unit, you're going to split that up into four or five flats or so, the consultant's cost for those could easily be 20, 25,000 pounds if you've got some difficulties with noise and environmental issues and, and air quality and some structural works to do and you know, other bits and pieces that go with it. it could easily be twenty, twenty-five thousand pounds. And you might not get that back, or even if you do get that back from your lender, you won't get it back until the builder has started on site. Yes. Because you've got to have, you know, so so yeah, this this it's not something to go into lightly. And and, and again, and you've is- you've just raised something that uh, that just sparked my thought process because I'm so used to doing it, is that most of us when we're talking about refurbs developments. We talk about bricks and mortar, bathroom suites, and everything else. But there's air quality, there's soundproofing, or and these tests that you all have to do, which people forget. You know, this is a big part of doing a refurbishment, really, isn't it? It's a hidden secret. Well, there's so much more has been bought in by the building regulations over the well, even over the ten years I've been working with property investors. Yes. And so this is why we see properties on the market that have been split into three flats, but they're non-compliant. Yeah. Because back in the day, back in the 1970s, 1980s, there was very, very woolly building regulations. Generally, they didn't apply to refurbishments and conversions. 
planning was very lapsed. So things, things just happened. We can't get away with that anymore. No. We have to comply with the building regulations. And there is a cost to that. The building regulations are becoming more and more onerous. There was another big upgrade September last year that has added on more onerous responsibilities as far as insulation. So that's all cost. Yes. And as you say, the tests that we've got to do, yeah, you know, 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, we wouldn't have put a fire alarm in. No. Leave the alone test. Uh, and this Where's is now? extraordinary. You know, who would think of having a building now without masses of fire alarms? But, Absolutely, but this is just how things have evolved, yes. uh, and and you know, emergency lighting. Yeah, that's a really good point. Even when people are doing viewings, so my daughter's buying a property at the moment, and we saw a fabulous, fabulous conversion of a Victorian, you know, two up, two down, into two very small flats, which is out there. They're full all the time. These two flats, but I think they're going to have a problem selling them because. I don't think they, we can't find any planning on them. We can't find all the bits of paperwork. And you know, you think, I don't know when, when these were done, but I think I'm going to have a problem actually doing something with them. Yes, I could buy them as they are and I could let them out. They, they, they qualify for that, but they don't fulfill mortgage obligations. And that's where people come unstuck, isn't it? Well, it, yes and no to some extent. Some people do, but those yeah. that go in with their eyes wide open yeah. solve the problems and make some money from that. Yes, and there are ways of solving these, but it. But what what you've highlighted there is you can't just walk in, see some flats, and go and buy them, assuming yeah. that because they're already flats, they're already compliant. Yeah, they could easily be on the market because someone has deemed them non-compliant. Yep, and you know the first thing you've got to do is is get them compliant. I bought a block of flats two years ago now, eighteen months ago, that we bought knowing they were non-compliant. And the first thing we did was have to put in a fire alarm system. Yep. And we boxed off, off all the electric meters that were at the bottom of the staircase. So if there'd have been a fire, all the electrics would have been alight before anyone got out of the building. Yes. So going the, with your eyes open. Is the absolutely. Key thing. And the other, the other thing is that, which again, people forget, is that you buy your lovely building and you start to rip it out. And there is a point at which you probably end up with a building that's worth less than it had been when you bought it because of what you've done to it. And that has comes as a shock to everybody for the first time that they've managed to damage their, their precious asset. This is where those of us who went through the credit crunch really win with experience, isn't it? Because what the market is doing has a big effect on people doing refurbs and developments, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Building is, and the associated businesses of building is, the second largest employer in the country behind the civil service. So it is massively affected by the economy. And so in a downturn, there's prices do drop off a little bit, but in a boom, the prices will definitely take off. So you've got to kind of, you've got to kind of factor one against the other to a certain extent. The only consolation is, to some extent, property investing works the other way around. So you, know, you can normally make some money back from it. But you've got to understand the market. And the difficulty for some people to understand is that in construction, more builders go bankrupt coming out of a recession than going into a recession. Yes. And the reason for that is they've priced projects in the boom time and the, the market's dropping, but they're still winning those projects. Yep. And they're still doing those projects at prices from five months ago, and they're great. But those that start pricing projects in the boom, in the low time, the market picks up and they're 
pegged in on those prices, that's when they get in financial difficulty. Yeah. So, and there were, we, we saw that after COVID. We saw businesses go down after COVID because prices were going up. The good builders actually spoke to their employers and talked about the problems and got themselves through it. The bad builders stuck their head in the sand, hoped it all went away, and ultimately lost their businesses and, of course, pulled down some developments with them, which isn't what we want to say. No, and also, of course, you know, as a small investor, perhaps doing you know one project after another, it can be a total disaster to lose your builder because they've gone bust. Oh, yeah, for, for any reason. I've just lost my pet builder because I recommended him to a client and he has badly messed up that project. Oh, right. So he can't do it. He won't do any more for me. And I've now got to go and find a new pet builder. Yes. And I've had this guy for two and a half years or so. I've been working with him in one way or another. So, yeah, you don't want to lo- lose a builder. There's a lot to be said for tendering your projects to multiple builders. Yep. But of course, you might get nice key prices, but it will take you time. There's also a benefit from knowing that you can go to the same person that you've used before. You can negotiate the prices. You pretty much well, it's it's the same as the one we did around the corner with a few adjustments. Yeah, and therefore you can start quite quickly. That, by the way, doesn't mean you shouldn't do a schedule of works. Yep, it doesn't mean that you bypass the drawings from the architect or anything like that. You still need to do all of that. Yeah, but you can shortcut that and speed things through a little bit if you know once you've got the relationship. And, and this that's comes key, back to isn't it? Was... Relationships with builders, because many people think builders are stupid and thick because they don't have letters after their names. Yeah, and, and in fact, we've talked about building yeah. a relationship with builders uh, earlier on. And the thing to remember about builders is many of them, particularly those that are still working on the tools, many of them left school without loads of academic qualifications. They weren't good with maths and English and things like that. They were good with their hands. They did the creative things. They went off, they got themselves an apprenticeship. They learned how to lay bricks, how to hang doors, whatever they did. And those people now are running small businesses still with the limitations of maths and English. Yeah. Some of them, which is why you get text messages and WhatsApp messages from them rather than quotes. Yeah. Why is it they struggle to do spreadsheets why they struggle to even some of them can't even do you know do an invoice properly yeah Um, i've worked with builders before where i've effectively agreed the price i'm paying them and generated my own invoice yes because i needed that for my paperwork that's what i often do yes (laughs) that's it and and this is about understanding people we're all different we've all got different skills and and i you know, although I've worked in construction for 30-something years, never once have I thought, oh, I'll grab the screwdriver and fix that. You know, I do a bit of DIY around my own house, but I don't do DIY around my investment properties no. because that is the, that's where builders are. That's what they're good at. That's what they can do. We've just got to acknowledge that in return, they're yeah, not so good at some of the things that we're good at. Yeah. And we all bring different things to the party, effectively. Absolutely. And, of course, to bring different things to the party, JV Partners. They are the money people usually in this whole thing. And as an investor who's got a JV money partner on board, they will want to show off their project. How do uh, how do you teach your mentees to approach their JV partners? Because, of course, the money person has no concept of safety or PPE or anything. What should these people wear? I, I have I had a client, this comes from the fact that I once had a client who seemed to be quite switched on and turned up with nothing more than flip-flops and a whiff of chiffon and was expecting to climb ladders. Yeah. So 
So one of the conversations I have with all of my clients, and, and, I, and I teach my, my, my students this as well, is that the day the building work starts, the responsibility of that site is the builder. It goes back to what we were saying earlier yeah, absolutely. on about the So therefore, I tell builders, do not let anyone in here that hasn't got proper protection. Yep. You know, if you've got a hard hat on site, lend them a hard hat, that's fine. But if, if they're in flip-flops, that's not good. If they're in trainers, depending on what the work is, that might be okay. Yep. Firm shoes is good. Steel toe caps is even better. Yep. So you can risk assess it to a certain extent. I think the thing with JV partners is it's almost the, this whole concept, well, I'm putting the money in, I can do whatever I like. Yes. And I encourage my students to tell their partners they can't because they're in the realms of, yeah, some serious risky business going on. And for me, I've been in construction this long that I can see risk around me on sites. I've grown up around it, but I'm also aware of it. I'm aware of where I should be, where I shouldn't be. And I'm also aware that there's possibly sometimes more risk on a site than there should be. And I'll sometimes prompt the builder on that. These these people are, have got no, none of this awareness. They're dancing around and can very easily walk into something, slip down something, cause something, some problems. Yeah, I mean, they, they are the majority. I think many of us who've been around buildings for a long time forget just how genuinely exciting being in a project is. Um, and we should never lose sight of that. So where we're just looking around and we get, and we're, as you say, you're clocking again, there's a hole there, there's some wires there, I won't touch that, blah, blah, there's a hook there. They are just going, oh, this is just so exciting. Wait till I tell everyone about it. And where am I going to take my photographs? And their feet are going in all sorts of places that they can't see. And so therefore, you know, if you are the project manager of this this lovely JV, it is up to you to make sure that you've got, you are working with them to let them understand this is a dangerous place. Uh, absolutely. And they really should be escorted around by someone from the contractor who is aware of what's going on. And, and under no circumstances should they be popping around on Sunday afternoon? No, no. Yeah, that is a complete no-no because you've got no idea in what state the building was left the day before. Uh, you know, the day before they dug a huge hole behind the front door and told all their guys to come around the back door for the following week yes. whilst they fixed it. But you don't know that. You open the door and fall down the hole. It's yes. simple terms. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, this is about understanding, again, CDM, who is responsible for what, and uh, yes, yeah, so even though you own it, not really whilst you're doing the work. That, that's that's right. Yeah, and in fact, exactly the same happens if you consider it from an insurance perspective. The day the builder takes over, they are responsible for insuring that building. You would keep your own insurance going, but they're they're responsible. And it's they're saying that is them them responsible. And if you if you read the full JCT form of contract that we were talking about earlier on, you'll you'll see things in there to get that clarity over that it is totally the demise of the contractor. Anyone can go there, the contractor can show anyone around, but it really ought to be by appointment. And if I'm going to a site, I'm generally phoning a builder beforehand or I'm agreeing with them beforehand. I'm gonna be there tomorrow afternoon. Will you be there to show me around? Or am I gonna meet your foreman? Or does it not work? And I've had builders say, Look, don't come. We've got a big steel delivery coming in. There's a crane outside. There's people everywhere. I don't want you here. And that's fair enough. 
And then there's other times where they're saying, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, it's a good time to come along. You, you won't be in the way or anything. Yes, and I think it's very tempting if you live very near to pop in and out all the time, you know, and treat it almost like a, you know, a, a, a cooking project. You know, nothing terrible happened. I mean, I know that I've, I'm literally out the window, which you can't see. I've got a very large set of buildings, Victorian buildings there, which are being slowly renovated. And three years ago, we were converting the Tudor barn into a wedding venue. But a lot of people were absolutely surprised that our builders, who are marvellous, we love them dearly, literally fenced the whole lot off. There were more placards and, and things than you could possibly imagine. And they were amazed when they saw us approach because you know we'd make we'd always we used to go out three times a day because it's on our doorstep and we would come to the fence and no further and they would come to the fence and let us in and everyone go but you've got a key I know but that's their building site at the moment and I must respect that and I think it's really easy to forget and it is something we have to keep on board with and this is this relationship with builders yes yeah builders can see these issues and again, it's one other thing. It's like, oh, I'm not sure I want to work with this this employer again, this client again, because they were just hard work. They kept popping in. They kept causing this. Yeah. I tend to go to my, the projects I'm running, and even my own projects, no more than once a week. Yeah. I, I want to know that I've written a good schedule of work. Therefore, the builder doesn't need me there all the time. And I want them to get on and build. I don't want to be in their way, no. holding them up, having a chat all of the time, because all the time they're having a chat with me, they're not delivering any work for me, which ultimately they're charging me for anyway. Absolutely. So you're charging yourself to have a conversation. Absolute nightmare. Exactly. <laughs> well, sadly, Martin, we can't talk about this all afternoon, although it is definitely our pet subjects. You know, we love talking about this. Now, you've got a very useful refurb book, and I know you have because a client, as I was saying, clients of mine have raved about it. How do, how do people get hold of it? How can they find you on social media and, and track all this down? Okay, yeah. So a couple of ways of getting hold of me. Uh, first of all, my website is refurbishmentmastery.com. On that website, there's a link where you can buy the book. In fact, you can get a free copy of the book on there. We'll send you a PDF immediately of the book. If you want a hard copy of the book, it's at uh, Amazon. You can search on my name or the book is called The Refurbishment Handbook. I wrote it for property investors back in 2016. So right. it's written to, to help property investors understand the, pro the, the process. And that's very much what I teach is the process of managing these projects through. I don't don't teach how big a screw do you need to fix something. <laughs> no, that's a trade thing. <laughs> that, that's it. I teach, yeah, where are you going to find the best man that knows the screw or the best designer that can design all of that? I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook predominantly. You'll find uh, me on there, Martin Rapley. You'll also find my business, Refurbishment Mastery with Martin Rapley. So you'll find that as a page on there on social media as well. And then on YouTube, um, I've got oh, 120 videos or so on refurbishment mastery on YouTube as well. So there's a lot of content on there. And if you really want to talk to me, go back to the website, refurbishmentmastery.com. There's a button at the top that says book a free 20-minute call. Perfect. So uh, you're welcome to have a chat with me. To uh, and yeah, I'll, I'll help you if I can, or we can talk about how I can help you with bigger things in the uh, in the future going forward. Yes, because I mean, one one of the reasons uh, that I found you and first started talking to you was, was one of my clients was talking about what you do and how you do it. And unlike many sort of things you can learn in property, which is you know, I took you took me from A to B and it's financial and everything else. The thing that they said, and I've seen this written down elsewhere, which was Martin gave me the knowledge and the confidence to jump over that cliff and get renovating. And that's what we want, isn't it? Is to, you know, because none of us ever will be perfect. 
we will always have something go wrong. It, it, it's a given. Absolutely. And it is you know, all about getting experience and getting some confidence. And that's really what I want to do. I want to give people confidence, yeah. but I want to keep a little bit more of the money in their wallet instead of it ending up down a black hole in someone else's wallet. <laughs> Um, absolutely. Well, I've just lost track of things. Absolutely. Well, property investors, we have to be having so many plates spinning along, and, and that's just one of them. Thank you very much this afternoon, uh, Martin, for finding the time to talk to me and my listeners. That's all right. That's been great. Some good questions there. Thanks very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to The Property Solopreneur with me, Rachel Troughton. If you've enjoyed this episode, do hit subscribe and kindly leave a review and share this podcast with anyone you think it would help on their property journey. If you'd like to get hold of my guide for building a successful property business, go to racheltroughton.com forward slash checklist. We only live one life. So let's get your dream a reality through building a profitable property business.